Hi, I'm Matt Staver, founder and chairman of Liberty Council. I wish I could be there in person, uh, but this is the next best thing. I wasn't able to join you, uh, but I am so glad that you're able to participate together, and I know you're learning and will continue to learn a lot of amazing things. Now is more critical than ever that we have strong pastors and churches that are not built upon the sand. We have so many churches that have become just mere social clubs, and they're not impacting the community. And pastors that are afraid and intimidated, and we need pastors who are shepherds, who are strong leaders, and churches who are built on the rock. Now I want to talk about two things, political activity of pastors and churches, what you can do with regards to political involvement. But I also want to talk about the issue of the matter of the COVID restrictions and what's happening to churches around the country. And really, the political activity is so much intertwined with what's happening around the country because elections do matter. In fact, in every state where the worst restrictions are on churches, we have a governor who is very pro-abortion, who also supports the Marxist revolutionary protesters and riots and the destruction even of their own cities. Yet at the same time, with the other hand, uh, is suppressing the church. Every single case in the country that we're involved in, and we're working in 44 states with about a couple thousand pastors, we're litigating in five states, we have the same template all around America where the worst restrictions are. It's a governor uh, that the people put in office, and that's why it's so important to talk about what you can do as a pastor and a church. I uh, want to first go to the difference between churches and other nonprofit organizations. A nonprofit organization that's not a church needs a 501c3 letter from the IRS to be considered tax-deductible contributions. Churches, on the other hand, they are tax-deductible, considered 501c3 organizations, whether or not they apply with the IRS from the moment of conception. That's a big difference. Churches can voluntarily get a letter, but they don't need a letter. By virtue of their very existence on day one, if they begin meeting in a private home or storefront, doesn't really matter. As long as that body of believers acts and operates as a church coming together for a common purpose regarding biblical issues and the Bible on a regular basis, that particular body is considered tax deductible for contribution purposes with or without the letter. Now, nine uh, other, other organizations that are not churches do need that letter. So if they lose the letter, they lose their tax exemption. Churches don't need the letter, so even if they were to lose it, the very next day they're born again. We'll talk about that as we go into this presentation. Let's look at the different categories in the IRS code with regards to lobbying. It came into existence in 1934. And then the political intervention one came into existence in 1954. That's called the Johnson Amendment by then Senator Johnson, later Lyndon Baines Johnson as president. But since those two dates, 1934 and 1954, uh, not one single church has ever lost its tax exemption for lobbying or political intervention. Now let's break this down first. Let's go into lobbying, the restriction that began in 1934. The lobbying definition is whether you're supporting or opposing a local, state, or national law. It includes voter initiative. So if you have a voter initiative on the local or state ballot, that would fall in lobbying. In other words, you could be involved in promoting 
uh, support or opposition to that particular voter initiative. It says, and this is the key, you may not devote more than a substantial part of your overall activity toward lobbying. Now, what is a substantial part of the overall activity? There's a general rule. It's called the 5 to 15% rule. 5% is clearly permissible. 15% has been considered in a nonprofit, not a church, too much lobbying. So let's begin our analysis with what I call a do-nothing church. And you may have actually been part of do-nothing churches in the past. Hopefully you're not now. I know you're not, otherwise you wouldn't be here. But this is really a do-nothing church. It really does nothing. And we're going to use the 5%, which we know clearly is permissible. So somewhere between 5 and 15% of your overall activity is permissible without even coming close to crossing the line. Let's use the 5% for this do-nothing church. This church has a three-hour Sunday service, 9 to 12, and a one-and-a-half-hour midweek service. Total time, four-and-a-half hours. There's no paid staff and no volunteerism. The pastor doesn't prepare for the message, just shows up at 9 o'clock, speaks whatever is on his mind, leaves at 12, doesn't think twice about the church after that, does it again midweek, same thing. There's no volunteers. Even the uh, Sunday school teachers, they don't prepare. They just go to the Sunday school class. Now, you may have had some like that, uh, but this is really a do-nothing church. No paid staff, nothing outside four and a half hours. Five percent of that do-nothing church Four and a half hours is 13 and a half minutes, meaning every single week in that three-hour service, for example, this church could devote 13 and a half minutes toward lobbying. Now, if you miss one week, it's 13 and a half minutes times two. If you miss two weeks, it's 13 and a half minutes times three and so on. It's over a period of a year. Take a look at what you do over a period of a year. Now, let's look at a little bit of more activity for this church. We'll add a paid pastor of 40 hours and a part-time assistant at 20 hours. Uh, we have five members now that actually volunteer one hour a week, and they prepare the Sunday school message, or they do some of the kind of community service. So that's five additional hours. Total is 40 hours for the pastor, 20 hours for the part-time person, five hours for the actual uh, volunteer service, and then four and a half hours of actual in-person church time, 69 and a half hours. And that means uh, three and a half hours, 5% of that is three and a half hours. Every week could be spent on lobbying. In other words, you could do the entire nine to 12 service every week for three and a half hours on lobbying, pro or against some kind of particular piece of legislation and still be at the 5% level. That's why no church has ever come even close to crossing that line. Now, if you add a full staff and other kinds of volunteer work, all the other things you add in, paid and unpaid, that's your overall activity. A substantial part, you would want to look at 5% of that. You're never going to come close to it. Let's look at what's really important coming up for this election and every election, particularly a presidential election. And this one is going to be the most important in our history by um, far, by far. I mean, we'll talk about that in a few moments. But 1954 is the political intervention provision. And that says you may not support or oppose directly a candidate for elected office. It's an absolute prohibition. Can't do it. 
nominees or appointed offices, they fall under lobbying. So if the president nominates a judge for federal bench, that falls under lobbying. You can make statements for or against that. It's not political intervention because that person's not elected, not running for elective office. That's an appointed office. Now, let's look at the Church of Pierce Creek, church out of New York. In 1992, this church uh, opposed then-Governor Bill Clinton for president because of his position on abortion. It took out full-page ads in the USA Today and the Washington Times newspaper and spent thousands and thousands of dollars in doing so. They also opposed directly Bill Clinton, governor at the time, for the president of the United States. They listed the church's name, the address, and asked for additional contributions so that it could receive more money to place additional ads opposing Bill Clinton. Well, as you know, Bill Clinton did win the presidency of 1992. And at that time, after he became president, the IRS came after this church. This church was one church that actually had a letter. They voluntarily applied for a letter. Now, let me talk about the letter again. Again, churches don't need an IRS tax-exempt letter. They're unique. They're exempted from the code from the moment of conception. But you can get a letter if you want to. And sometimes churches get the letters because either they think they have to or for just a mere matter of convenience. If you're going to apply for a grant to a foundation, oftentimes they want to see your 501c3 letter. Or if you want to get tax exemption, it's easy to, uh, from a local business Easy to show them your 501c3 letter, but you don't need it. And if you have one, you don't need to get rid of it. If you don't have one, you don't need to seek it because the letter has no meaning other than it may help you for some practical issues, but it has no substantive meaning. And that's what this court said. This particular church had a letter. The IRS uh, came to the church. The church was not willing to negotiate. The church could easily have resolved the issue and moved on, but they wanted to poke the IRS in the eye. So the IRS pushed back, and they took the letter. The church sued to get the letter back, but the Federal Court of Appeals in the District of Columbia said the letter is just symbolic, has no substantive meaning for churches, and during the litigation, the IRS admitted that not one dollar contributed to the church was taxable, even though the church clearly crossed the line by publicly endorsing and spending money opposing a candidate for elected office. But even in that situation, the church never lost its tax exempt status. So here's what you can clearly do without going as far as the church at Pierce Creek. You can preach on any topic. You can educate, explain the positions of candidates. You can distribute voter guides. You need to educate them on the biblical topics, whether it's life or marriage or liberty, whatever it may be. Educate on those biblical topics throughout the year, not just at election time, but throughout the year. And you can certainly do that during election time. Just because politicians are speaking about abortion doesn't make it a political issue. It's always a biblical issue. There's no issue that is outside of the Bible. So educate them on what the Bible says on these important issues. Also educate them about the importance of voting. It's not politics, as some people think. It's not a political act, as some people think. It's not uh, the nastiness of the political arena. It is a biblical act. It is a prophetic witness to the community. It is not an option. It's not a privilege. It is a duty for us as Christians to impact our community and to transform our community. And in fact, voting 
is the appointment of an agent that acts on your behalf. And when you appoint an agent for you, that agent binds you, works on your behalf in places that you're not able to be. And you place that agent to be your representative. We even call them on the federal level representatives in the U.S. House. Or on the state level, there are representatives. No matter what their name is, it is a representative capacity. And they represent us. And we are appointing them in that position to act on our behalf. So we cannot appoint someone. We cannot appoint an individual who is directly contrary to the Bible. We cannot appoint an individual who will sanction, who will promote the killing of innocent children as an example. We will not support and cannot support an individual that ultimately will take taxpayer funds to slaughter innocent human beings in the womb with a brutal death and torture. Uh, that will be held against us because these are our agents that we've appointed. Now, if we don't appoint them by virtue of not electing somebody, then we've allowed somebody else to appoint an agent for us. And our duty, we have passed on to someone else. And either way, we're going to be held responsible for those actions. So it is a Christian duty. As we believe on Sunday and as we sing praises in our sanctuaries, we need to act and do on Monday, Tuesday, all through the rest of the week. We cannot bifurcate. We cannot have a distance between the candidate and us. And if you say, well, there's no perfect candidate, that's right. Stop looking for a perfect candidate. You're not going to find one unless Jesus Christ is on the ballot, but he's not running for political office. He's King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the only one who's ever perfect. There's never going to be somebody perfect. But what you need to do is look at the candidates and compare them to your biblical views. Now, you need to understand where the candidates fall on these particular biblical views, and that's where you can explain the position of these candidates on important issues, biblical issues. And you can pass out objective voter guides. We review voter guides from around the country. We post those voter guides on our website. There's other voter guides that are out there that give you good information so that you can have an informed decision. So you preach on biblical values, you encourage people to register to vote. You talk about the duty that we have, the appointment of an agent, the prophetic witness that it is to the community. And then you tell them where these candidates stand on important issues. And then they're going to do the right thing. Now, you can also invite candidates to speak in the church. They can speak. They can be acknowledged. And you can even have candidate forums where you have debates. In fact, it's often even better. Uh, if they don't show up, that's, that's fine. But if they do show up, the more you let them speak, uh, the more obvious truth is that it's not with certain of these candidates. So you can certainly do that. You can also encourage voter registration. You need to look at your individual state where you're at uh, with regards to the requirements for voter registration. But you can always invite someone from the local voter registration office to come there in your lobby and register people to vote. You can also encourage people to uh, apply online for voter registration. They'd have to apply and then get their information and then respond and uh, ultimately file for their voter registration. We're not talking about voting. We're talking about voter registration. They need to be registered to vote before they obviously can vote. And you can uh, encourage people to vote. You can provide transportation uh, to the polls. You can lend your name and title and affiliation. Uh, Pastor John of ABC Church 
and you can have that name associated at a uh, particular event with a publication on a website for the candidate, wherever it may be. As long as you put your uh, name, title, and affiliation, uh, you just put an asterisk after that, and the asterisk says title and affiliation for identification purposes. So the asterisk will come somewhere after your name or title or affiliation. That at the bottom of wherever that publication is, and it could be for all the pastors that are listed there, it just simply says asterisk, title and affiliation for identification purposes. That comes directly from the IRS, and the IRS says that that is not a corporate endorsement. That's a personal endorsement, even though it identifies your church. Obviously, you can do anything uh, as an individual uh, with regards to uh, political intervention. Again, no church has ever lost its tax exemption for uh, engaging in lobbying or for engaging in political intervention. With that, I want to encourage you to take off the uh, muzzle and replace it with a megaphone. Uh, we also have at Liberty Council a DVD, uh, Silence is Not an Option, with a Patriot's Handbook, a pocket-sized handbook, that goes over what I just uh, discussed, and we can provide that free, and we can provide it to any other pastors that you know around the country that may be able to benefit from this information. So I want to move now from this presentation to the presentation with regards to why you want to be involved in political activity. We know that you can be involved lobbying. You can also be involved in the election. But why? Uh, part of what you're discussing already with the Marxism and the revolutionary uh, movements that are happening in America is clear enough reason why you need to be involved. Uh, but I also want to talk about what's happening to the churches. What you see on the one hand, let me just give you an example in California. You see a governor, Gavin Newsom, who on the one hand says to churches uh, on July the 6th, you can't sing or chant, and gives a 14-page single-space document micromanaging every detail of how worship should be conducted in small numbers throughout the state of California. That was July the 6th, going as far as to how communion should be done and all the other things. I mean, it's absolutely unbelievable, the details in this particular order. But if that were not bad enough, he then goes on to issue another order on July the 13th, uh, one day after the protest of July the 12th. And in this order, he says, no worship at all in any of the counties that's on the county monitoring list. At the time, it's about 33 counties. That covers about 80% of the California population. So in 80% of the California population, there is zero worship. I'm not talking about 10 people. I'm talking about no people. You cannot have any in-person worship in any place of worship. Churches completely banned for 80% of the population. But it goes further. We've had some people say, well, maybe we're returning to the house church. And maybe that may be true in some places. Certainly it's true in certain persecuted places around the world. And they're content by saying, well, we can just have worship in our home, even though our churches are closed. Well, in California, you cannot have worship in your home. You can worship with your wife or your children, but you cannot have another person who does not live in that home come to your home. You cannot go to another person's home. You can't visit a friend. You can't visit a neighbor. You can't go across the street and pray for your neighbor who may be ill, suffering, depressed, or even on the verge of death for whatever reason. 
You can't go there to have a Bible study. You can't go there to lead them to Jesus Christ. In California, it's completely banned. No worship, period. Even in your home, no Bible study, no home fellowship. That's why we're litigating in California on behalf of Harvest Rock Church and Harvest International Ministry, which has 162 affiliate churches throughout California. We're fighting against the singing and chanting band that covers about 20% of the state where you can have minimal people. And that singing and chanting band also applies to having people over in your house. You can't sing or chant in your house with other people. And then the other 80% of the population that are governed by the no worship at all order. Now, California is not the first state to actually do that. We'll talk about another case in Kentucky. But California is the most recent state to ban all worship. Now, the same governor in California is like every other governor with all these other restrictions around the country. On the one hand, they're suppressing the church. You can't worship. Zero worship. No singing or chanting. Before that, now, no worship at all. On the other hand, 100,000 people show up in Los Angeles area, Hollywood region, to protest. And I have photographs. They're in the federal court, shoulder to shoulder, back to front. They go on for long, long distances. 100,000 people gathered. They're singing. They're chanting. They're there for hours. They have, many of them, no mask. Obviously, no social distancing. They look like sardines in a can. And the governor, instead of being upset with the fact that they're violating his orders, they say on the website, you have a First Amendment right to engage in protest. And then he also says, quote, God bless you, keep doing it, close quote. That's Governor Gavin Newsom. And that is happening all over California. And they're not just protesting, by the way. Many of them are rioting and destroying cities and even going into private neighborhoods. So on the one hand, he's supporting a Marxist revolution and disorder. And on the other hand, he's suppressing the church. Should it be of any surprise to us? Because any time Marxism or totalitarian regimes have tried to overthrow communities and governments and nations around the world, throughout world history, what's the first target? The first target is always the church. Now, there's another common theme. These uh, governors not only support the Marxist revolutions and the destruction of the cities and the downing of uh, law enforcement and the denigration of our law enforcement men and women who are out there putting their lives on the line every day. At the same time, they're suppressing the church. But at the same time, there's another common factor. And that is, every single one of them are radically pro-abortion. And that should not be surprising. If they don't respect your life, they're not going to respect your religious freedom. And if they have an agenda to destroy America, the first target is going to be the church. So that's the commonality. How did they get there? They got there by voting. Some people in the churches voted for these politicians. And the same is in every one of these states. Let's go to Virginia. In Virginia, we represent Lighthouse Fellowship Church. It's in a small area of Virginia on the coast. Very little Internet access. This church does not have Internet opportunities or access at the church. Many of its members do not have Internet access. Some of them have come out of drug addiction and prostitution for them, the church is their only family. They have no other family. They need the church to continue on their road to recovery, on their road to redemption. These are people who have been led to the Lord, but they need support. This is their family. This particular group of people, some of them, uh, they are taken by other church members to doctor's appointment. 
They help them fill out forms, whether it's medical or for disability, unemployment, whatever it may be. This church is the family. It really is the lighthouse on the coast of Virginia. Well, governor uh, uh, of that state, uh, Ralph Northam, who's very radical pro-abortion. Remember, he's the one who said, well, when they were wanting to repeal all the abortion laws and allow infanticide, he'd say, well, when a baby was aborted but it was born alive, he'd have a conversation with the mother. Conversation about what? A conversation about what kind of medical treatment to provide? No. A conversation as to whether to give a thumbs up or thumbs down to that baby gasping for air who's born alive that survived an abortion. That's not a conversation. That's a Hitler-esque kind of attempt to destroy human life. That is the first right, the right to life. If you don't have the right to life, you have no other rights. The freedom of religion, the freedom of property, whatever liberty you have, it's all illusory to a corpse. It means nothing to a dead person. The right to life is the right of all rights. Well, this is what he says. Now, on Good Friday, the same governor signed into law. On Good Friday, he chose that day, Good Friday, signed into law these very radical pro-abortion bills. In fact, the election has consequences because we had a change, unfortunately, toward a very radical legislature controlled by one party in the House and the Senate and the governor's mansion last year, and this is what's happened this year. It's become the most radical uh, state in the country with regards to all the issues that are near and dear to us, whether it's LGBT, whether it's the human sexuality, marriage as a man and a woman, whether it's abortion, whether it's religious freedom, you name it. Uh, it is an example of where America will go if the election doesn't follow biblical values. People that have biblical values, if they are not voted into office at every level this coming November, you can know, all you have to do is look at what's happening in Virginia to know what's coming down the pipe. So he signed into office, signed into law on uh, the Good Friday, these abortion bills. He did it intentionally, shed blood on Good Friday by liberalizing these abortion laws. Well, on Palm Sunday, he sent officers to this little church he said you could only have 10 people in attendance. Now, you could jam the liquor stores. That kind of a spirit is okay, but the Holy Spirit is not. You could also go to the abortion clinics and you can kill your children because he said that's essential. You could jam all the other stores and their parking lots, no problem. But only have 10 people in church, no matter whether you have a 10,000-seat sanctuary. It doesn't matter, only 10 people. And on Palm Sunday, this church had 16 people, one six, six people over the 10-person limit. Uh, two officers came. They gave the pastor a citation, charged him criminally. He could uh, spend up to a year in prison and um, have significant fines of $2,500. And then they threatened the rest of the other 15 members that were there. If you come back next week for Easter, we're going to do the same thing to every one of you. We're going to make you criminals. We will criminalize what you are doing because it is criminal conduct to come together with more than 10 people. 11 people will, doesn't matter. If you have one person over 10, you're all going to be criminally cited. We're talking about really criminalizing Christianity. These uh, people had no Easter service because they had no alternative online. These people had no time to gather together in fellowship with other believers on Easter, the most important holiday in our Christian cal in our calendar, in our Christian history. 
Now, we got the uh, criminal misdemeanor eventually uh, withdrawn, dismissed, but it took a couple of months, and we're still litigating in Virginia. Let's move over to Easter, the Sunday after. In Kentucky, there was a no worship ban. That included parking lot services. And what we had there is the governor of the state ultimately said uh, he was going to send police officers to the churches that had parking lot services or any service. So this particular church, Maryville Baptist Church, about a 700-seat sanctuary, had a very small number of people inside. That wasn't the issue. They had people outside in the parking lot. They were doing also a broadcast out in the parking lot with the speaker so people could hear the message and enjoy the Easter service in their car. And while they are in their car, with the windows rolled up, the state police came car by car, posting notices of quarantine in each car and taking down their VIN numbers and their license plates. That was on Sunday. It hit the media on Sunday and Monday. Some people were terminated from their jobs because they came to work on Monday. They didn't have COVID symptoms. They just got this bogus citation that they needed to go into quarantine. Why would you tell your employer? And when the employer said, don't you go to that Maryville Baptist Church? Yes. They terminated some of them on the spot. To this day, they're still out of work. On Thursday, the governor actually sent, and they received on that day, a letter demanding 14-day quarantine for everybody and any person in that vehicle. They weren't allowed to travel out of the county. They had to take their temperature at the same time every day and report it to the local health department. We filed suit. Uh, We originally were before an Obama-appointed judge. He denied our request for an emergency restraining order. We appealed to the Federal Court of Appeals, and on the Saturday afternoon of the week after we filed the case, we received a 3-0 to decision in our favor on the parking lot services. One week later, on the following Saturday afternoon, we received a second opinion from that same court, 3-0 to on the parking uh, lot, not only that, but also on the in-person, saying that it was unconstitutional to ban worship in person. So we won two 3-0 to zero cases back-to-back. The case is still litigating. It's still at the Court of Appeals. Why? Because the governor wants to return to his old unconstitutional ways. And so we're still moving forward on the appeal, even though we got the injunction. In Illinois, we have a case. We have cases in Maine as well. But let me tell you about what happened in Illinois. We represent Romanian churches with Romanian pastors. These are people who immigrated from former communist Romania. Uh, They were there when pastors were beaten, they were imprisoned, where churches were bulldozed, where religious freedom was not in existence, where they looked to America as the land of the free. That's why they came here. They love America. This is their country. Never thought that they would encounter what they encountered. And they complied. They closed down their churches. But then after a while, they said, enough is enough. These orders continually get extended and extended and extended. And so they ended up saying, we're going to open our churches. They sent a letter to the governor. We represent the churches, Elim Romanian Pentecostal Church and Logos Baptist Ministries, located in the Chicago area. They socially distanced. They did a model of opening. They brought in professional cleaning companies. It was amazing what they did. Went far and beyond what any secular commercial operation would ever think to do. And this is what kind of treatment they got from the lesbian mayor, Lori Lightfoot, in Chicago, and the pro-abortion mayor, who also has a a family member who is transgender, uh, J.B. Pritzker, 
the most wealthy mayor in American history, part of the Pritzker family, uh, they came after these churches with both barrels loaded. What happened is the first thing they did was they put no parking signs for nine blocks around the churches, put it on the street parking from 7 a.m. to 9 p.m. on Sunday. Then they came in and they told the neighbor's cars. One nurse came home at 4 a.m. in the morning. She came out to her car after she had parked it there, got a few hours sleep. A little after 7, her car's gone. It's towed. The neighbors then got uh, letters from the local aldermen saying, no parking, the reason for that, and the reason your cars are being towed is because this particular church is disobeying the governor's orders, gave the church's name and the address of that church. We were concerned that they would have violence directed to the church. That's what the mayor wanted to do. But the neighbors knew better. The neighbors knew that these churches do not use street parking. The mayor didn't know that. So that was Sunday morning. When the mayor found out that that didn't work, she sent three police cars that evening when they had the Sunday evening service. They blocked the entrances to the private driveway, which is right across the street, which is what the churches do use. And we could actually hear during a Facebook Live video of that event, we could hear gunshots uh, echoing through the city of Chicago in the background. It's one of the most dangerous cities in America. Yet these police cars didn't move. They were more focused on their order to block the entrance to the churches. That didn't stop the Romanian uh, people that wanted to go to church. They dropped off their friends, their family. They drove for nine-plus blocks, walked back in the cold rain, and they realized, well, that didn't work. So on Monday uh, and following, they gave the pastors criminal misdemeanor citations, uh, and those are still pending. We are still litigating that. And when that didn't work, they sent a letter from the public health department. When that did not work, they sent another letter from the public health department saying, we will execute summary abatement. Summary abatement in Illinois is the closure of the building, including the destruction and bulldozing of the facility. When that letter arrived on Saturday before the next Sunday service, uh, we asked the U.S. Supreme Court for an immediate intervention. Four hours before the governor was to reply to the Supreme Court, he miraculously just removed all the restrictions. He went from one of the worst states in the country to no restrictions in the country, that case is still being litigated. These churches are still meeting. These pastors are still resolved. The restrictions have not yet been reimposed. But this governor wants to reimpose them, just like every other governor. The governor there is pro-abortion, pro-LGBT, and anti-religious freedom. And the same thing is happening in every one of these states. Like I said, we're representing uh, five different cases in uh, Virginia, Kentucky, Maine, uh, with uh, Pastor Ken there, also in Illinois and in California. And we are working with thousands of pastors in 44 states. A number of states have resolved the restrictions, uh, but many states are seeking to reimpose those restrictions. Look, we have on the agenda for our election the issue of judges. Who is going to appoint these judges? I can tell you as a matter of fact, We've had only one victory before an Obama judge in all of our cases. I'm not talking about just church cases. And that is a judge that is in Kentucky who ultimately ruled against us, but ultimately had to rule for us when he was reversed 3-0 to zero at the Federal Court of Appeals. Every other case has gone against us. And I'm not talking about just church cases. I'm talking about any case we've ever had. We've always had to go beyond to the Court of Appeals. 
Uh, it makes a big difference who's in the White House appointing these judges. I can tell you there's a big, big difference between the judges uh, that the president has been appointing versus any other Republican and certainly any other Democratic president in history before now. Uh, that also uh, goes right into the sanctity of human life, the issue of life and the future of children and whether you're going to be forced to actually support abortion like under the Obamacare mandate that ultimately has now finally, after many, many years of litigation, ultimately run its course against these religious organizations and was not successful. But we could go right back to that. With regards to the Marxist revolution, we could certainly go right into that direction because all of these particular ideologues are supporting it. And we see that playing out on both the national and local elections as well. With regards to LGBT, the most uh, uh, expansive LGBT legislation in history, H.R. 5, the so-called Equality Act, was passed in the House controlled by one party. And it by far would literally come after churches and repeal the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. You would never be able to have that as a defense anymore, even though the U.S. Supreme Court recently called it a super statute and that it would protect religious freedom. They don't want to protect religious freedom. They want to indoctrinate. They want to enforce. They want to coerce. They want to demonize. And they want to marginalize and literally move you from the marketplace if you don't toe the line. Religious freedom is on the ballot as well. My friends, my pastors, shepherds of the flock, do not be afraid to speak out on issues that the Bible speaks about. You are called for such a time as this. This is the time for you to be bold and for you to open the churches and for you to communicate and comfort the people. With the churches being closed and all the lockdowns and all the stress, there has been so much that has happened that more people have died because of these closures than by the virus itself. We now know that 100,000 people, according to a Yale expert who's an epidemiologist, have needlessly died because they can't get hydro, uh, the HCQ, the uh, hydroxychloroquine medication, a very safe 65-plus year approved FDA drug. And he says that 100,000 people have needlessly died because they haven't been able to get it in the United States. That's politics, my friend, and that's criminal. And that means elections do matter. 100,000 people. This is an individual who's an MD and a PhD, an epidemiologist who's a professor at Yale. He's a highly respected individual. We must stop this political dismantling of our country. And it's time for pastors and churches to speak up. Suicides have escalated in number. Depression, domestic abuse, child abuse, child sexual exploitation, all of it is on a rise. It is time to open up and for the church to be the church that transforms the community to be the light so that when the doors are closed, it has to be so essential. And when the lights are off, that the community groans in its absence. Remember, Jesus said that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. You are called for such a time as this. And we are moving into a period of time where it's the most important election in history with regards to human sexuality, marriage and family, the sanctity of human life, the innocent children who suffer, religious freedom, and even the survival of America. So I encourage you, I encourage you to replace the muzzle that the world wants to put on you with a megaphone. May God bless you. May God forgive this land. 
May God heal us and may God bless America. And may God begin that with your voice in your pulpits, in your church, in your community, in your state, and around the country. God bless you. It's been a a privilege and a pleasure to be able to share this time with you. Thank you very much.